0: Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to turn with me in your copy of scripture to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This morning we'll be looking at verses 25 through 36. 25 through 36. So we've been in John chapter 7 for a couple weeks now and we've seen that it's Similar to some of the other chapters that have come before, but at the same time, it's very different. It's similar in that there is, there is this feast that's going on. There's a great festival that's happening, just as we saw in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 6. There's discussion with Jesus and the religious leaders about the, of the day about his nature, about his person, and about his work. But what's different about John chapter 7 is there's no sign, there's no miracle, there's no healing of a land man, there's no miraculous feeding of 5,000 or walking on water. There's only Jesus. (laughs) And there's only this feast. And what I've tried to point out the last couple weeks is the reason I think John does this and frames this chapter the way he does is to emphasize the feast this Feast of Tabernacles that is currently going on throughout the whole of John chapter 7. We see it begin to happen at the beginning, and we'll see next week it come to a conclusion on the last day of the feast. And so the reason is that Jesus is the true tabernacle. This Feast of Tabernacles was always pointing to the person and work of Christ, as with all the other feasts in the Old Testament, the Feast of Passovers and the Feast of Pentecost will all be fulfilled in Christ's person and his work, that he is the one that tabernacled among his people, dwelt among them in the flesh, and he has come in his glory, and yet his glory is veiled to so many. Veiled to his brothers, as we saw in the first section, veiled to the crowds and the religious leaders of the day, and we'll see it's no different in our passage this morning. And throughout this, Jesus is not going to stop declaring who he is. He's not going to stop declaring his person, who he is, and his work, what he came to do. And as we talked about last week, the people are struggling. They're struggling to see who Jesus really is, as many in our day struggle to see who Jesus truly is. They've only, they're only judging by appearances. They're only judging by appearances. They're only looking to the outward external glory. They've missed the true glory of Christ that is veiled to them, but he is still the one that is tabernacled amongst his people. And so even though there's much confusion about Christ, confusion about who he is, and confusion about where he is from and where he is going, we'll see this morning that Jesus shows us in very clear simple language yet profound at the same time he reveals to the people not only who he is where he has really come from and where he is going and in doing this jesus is giving the people the only way that they can have life he's showing them that he is not only jesus from nazareth but the very and eternal god he did not just come to live a lavish life on the earth Even as we read in Isaiah 53, but he came to suffer, to die for the sin of his people, but to ultimately be resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man... He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Continuing in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we may not find him? Does he intend to go to the the diaspora among the Greeks and speak um, and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We come in great need of your help. Lord, as John writes um, this gospel in very simple, plain language, we find great profound truths that even the greatest minds cannot comprehend. And so we come this morning, we come to your word humbly. We do not want to come presuming, we do not want to come in arrogance or pride, but we come humbly, Lord, seeking to stand under your word that you would speak to us this morning, that your infallible word Your revelation to your people, the the very means by which we can know what salvation is and how we can obtain it, is found here in this gospel and in this passage. And so this morning we pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Christ this morning and that we would see that we need life this morning. We need life. We don't just need earthly life, not just fleshly life that we have by nature of being born, but we need everlasting, eternal life that can only come through the person and work of Christ. So this morning, help us to look to Christ, to trust in him, the one who has come, not only as the son of man, but the very son of God. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we, it's important that each week as we jump into, into John, and I think this week in particular, even more so, it's important that we remember why John wrote his gospel. That there's, there's kind of confusing language in here. People are asking Jesus where he's from. They're asking him if he's the Christ, where he's going, where he's coming. It's like, what is this about? Why is this important? John tells us why he wrote the gospel. And so anytime you're going through the scriptures, even not even in John, but anytime you're going through the scriptures, to, to go back to John chapter 20, as he says, I've written these things so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you might have a life in His name. And so we can try to remember that as we get into this passage that John wrote this so that you and I might have life this morning. That we might have eternal, lasting life by seeing who Christ is and what He came to do. And even though John will use simple language to explain some of these things, Jesus will use simple language to explain these things to the crowds, to the religious leaders, He communicates great profound truth about who he is, where he is from ultimately, and where he is going. And so hopefully we see that this morning. So if you want to follow along on your outline, we'll look at three things this morning. We'll see firstly this confusion about Christ, this confusion from not only the crowds, but even the religious leaders about who Jesus is, where he has come from, his origins, if we can use that language, and where he is going. And we'll see as we go through the text that Jesus is going to proclaim that He is the one that has come, not just from Nazareth, but from the Father, that He is from God because He is God. And lastly, we'll see that He is not only from the Father, but He is the one going to the Father. In His human nature, He will reign with God forever as the Son of Man. And so... If you want to follow along with me on your outline, you can take take notes if you if you want to do that. So we begin in in verse chapter 20. In sorry, not verse chapter. That's not a thing. In verse 25, we begin at verse 25, continuing where we were last week. And so what we saw the last couple weeks is the people are focused on the outward, on the external, right? Jesus' brothers want him to go to the festival. They want him to do a miraculous sign so that people will follow him so he can get this great crowd. Jesus is not concerned with that. We see the crowds and the religious leaders, they are focused on the external, on the earthly, on the outward. And this is not a new theme in John's Gospel. If you go back to John chapter three, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, I can't go back into my mother's womb, right? Nicodemus is focused on the earthly. He tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, I have living water for you to drink. And she says, But you don't even have a bucket. You can't get anything from the well. She's focused on the earthly. We saw the same thing in John chapter 6. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And the people say, when are you going to do another miracle? When are you going to feed us again? And so it's not a new theme in John's gospel for people, especially in Jesus' day, to be focused on the outward, on the earthly. And we'll see again and again, Christ is going to point them to the true spiritual reality so in verse 25 we see the same thing they say is this not the man whom they seek to kill and so we see that the people of jerusalem are beginning to to recognize christ to see who he is that it's not only his brothers it's not only the religious leaders it's not only the crowds but even the people of jerusalem that were gathered for this feast there's confusion about who jesus is They'd failed to see the true glory of Christ. They call him merely a man. They said, "Is this not the man whom they seek to kill?" They realize that the religious leaders had a plot to kill Jesus. They realize that there's something going on here, something more than meets the eye. These religious leaders—they don't like Christ. They don't like what he's come to do, and they also realize that they're not speaking about Christ openly. That they're silent about this. And this sort of leads them to speculate that maybe the religious leaders know that this is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament. And then they say something very interesting in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's kind of an interesting verse. You might have been reading that maybe this morning if you were looking through the passage and thought, What does this have to do with anything? Why is this, why is verse 27 in here? Well, this has to sort of do with the messianic expectations of the day. That there was a, what we call them. this is a big language, messianic consciousness. That the people of the day knew the Old Testament. They knew that they needed a savior, a Christ, the anointed one promised in Psalm 2 to come and save them. But they they missed the reality of what Christ would do because they had these expectations that were not found in the Scriptures. They were misreading Scripture. They thought this great king would come and set up a big earthly kingdom, that he would have a lofty, sort of mysterious origin. Some of the rabbinic tradition would say that the Messiah is going to come and it's going to be mysterious. It's going to be kind of, where has he come from? Where is he going? There was all this talk about the Messiah. And so they're thinking in their heads, well, we know where Jesus is from. He can't possibly be the Messiah. They had sort of added to God's word and added their own expectations onto what the Christ would be. And they also sort of expected this earthly kingdom, that Jesus would overthrow the Romans, that he would save them in an earthly sense. And that's not at all what Jesus came to do in his first coming. And so once again, the people have judged by appearances. They've not judged with right judgment. They've not discerned the word of God rightly. Or we can say this. They knew his earthly origins, that he was from Nazareth, but they had missed his heavenly origin. They judged by appearances. They saw his incarnate human nature. They saw him standing right in front of him, but they missed his eternal divine nature. They knew Jesus as merely a man, but not as the eternal God. They knew Jesus from Nazareth, not as the son sent from the father. So they thought they had Jesus all pinned down. We know where you're from, Jesus. We know where your hometown is. We know your parents. There's no way that you could surprise us in any way. We got you all figured out. We can see you. You're just a man. That's all you are. They thought they had him figured out. But as we see in the passage, they are all wrong. And it's kind of interesting, the language that Jesus uses here. He he almost admits that you know me in an earthly sense. You know where I come from in an earthly sense. But then he'll say, ultimately, you do not know him who sent me. So not only did they get Christ wrong, they also got the Father wrong. They did not really know Christ rightly, and therefore they could not know the Father rightly. At the end of verse 28, it says, him you do not know. This sort of echoes what Jesus will say in the next chapter, John chapter 8, verse 19. He says, you know, neither me nor my father. So he's condemning the Jews. And this would have been this would have been astounding for them to hear as as Orthodox Jews. They 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 Yahweh was their father. He was the one that they looked to. And for them to say for Jesus to say, you do not know the father would have been really condemning to them. And it's not just that he's saying you don't know him, you don't know about him. They obviously knew about God the Father. But what he's saying is you do not have true knowledge of the Father. You do not know him in a saving, true way. And so Jesus, in his grace and in his self-revelation, he gets to verse 29 where he says these three amazing statements. So we're going to take a little bit of time to look at each of these statements sort of phrases that Jesus uses in verse 29. So it's helpful if you look there because even though the words are simple, they're all one syllable, there's profound truth to be found in this passage. And so Jesus says three things. He says, I know him, I know the Father, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus begins by contrasting their lack of knowledge with his true knowledge. He says, I know the Father. I know him. Jesus here is claiming unique, divine knowledge of the Father that only he can have. (laughs) This is not knowledge that they had, even in an earthly sense of the Father, but this is unique, divine, perfect knowledge of the Father. Or as the 17th century, century theologian John Gill said, this is Jesus saying he knew the Father's perfections, his very nature, His mind and his will. And what's amazing about this, if we we zoom out at the rest of Scripture, it's very clear, Jesus will say in other places in Matthew, No one knows the Father. No one knows the Father. And Jesus is saying, I know him. This is the unique nature of Christ knowing of the Father. But the scripture is clear. No one knows the Father. No one can comprehend God. God is what we call incomprehensible. (laughs) Incomprehensible. He cannot be comprehended by any but himself. That's what our confession says in chapter 2. He cannot be comprehended. He cannot be understood by any but himself. Which to us, maybe if we're honest, that's like, Really? That seems sort of odd, but I think we can say if God could be comprehended by us, then he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be all-powerful, all amazing, eternal one. So God cannot be comprehended by any but himself, and yet Jesus says, I know him. I have unique divine knowledge of him, and the answer, the question that we have to ask is how. How does Jesus... As a man standing there in the first century, how does he? How can he claim to have this divine knowledge of God without being a blasphemer? Well, he gives us the answer in the second phrase. In the second phrase, he tells us where he has come from, and he says, "For I come from Him." So there's all this discussion about where is Jesus from, and, and you know, if, the, if he's really the Messiah, we won't know where he's from. Jesus is confronting that. He's saying, I've come from the Father. I've come from the Father. That the Son alone knows the Father because He alone is from the Father. That this is when, or rather who, He is from. And we have to take a minute here to sort of dive into this this small phrase, these five words here, because there is so much truth that's packed into these five verses that we could actually talk about it for many Sundays to come if we wanted to. But let's just take a couple minutes to look at this phrase um, that we see here in John chapter seven. We see here in this phrase, for I come from him, we see a deep, glorious mystery about the triune God. We see a deep, glorious mystery about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus says, the reason I know the Father is because I am from him. Or we can say it like this. Jesus here is claiming unique divine knowledge of the Father because he is the unique eternally begotten Son from the Father. That Jesus here is not claiming to just be from God in the sense that you and I are from God, right? As one um, theologian said, this is from the 4th century. This is Hilary of Poitiers. He says, all things, all created things are from God, right, in a sense, Everything is from God. He is the creator of all things. God is the one who created us. And yet, none know the Father. None know the Father, as we've said. And so, this is not something that you and I can say. We can't say we know the Father and have come from Him in the same way that Jesus is claiming here. This is the unique thing that only the Son of God can claim. And so, Jesus here is not talking in earthly, kind of creaturely terms. And he's not even talking about him coming from the Father in the sense of his incarnation. So he's not talking in a creaturely sense, in a creation sense. He's not even talking in an incarnation sense. What do I mean? The Son did not become the Son at his birth in Bethlehem. That Jesus didn't become the Son in his incarnation. He always was the Son. He always was the Son. He eternally the eternally begotten one. And so if we make this phrase mean that Jesus, when he says, I come from him, meaning the incarnation, if we follow this logically, it doesn't really make any sense. It would be like saying this, if this is true, Jesus can only know the Father because he was incarnate, right? Because he says, I know him because, for, I come from him. So it would be like Jesus saying, the only reason I know the Father is because I was born of the Virgin Mary. That's not true. We believe in the Trinity, the triune God, one God in three persons. And so how do we understand this language of Jesus, the Son of God, coming from the Father? And this is what we call eternal generation, eternal generation. That the Son always was the Son because he is eternally from the Father. That this is a mystery, this is this is a great truth that our minds cannot wrap our cannot wrap around that this idea of eternal generation is something that we must believe and confess that the son is what john would say eternally begotten that he is eternally from the father that to be a son just like some of you have sons to be a son is to be generated by your father right to be generated to come from your father but In our modern day so quickly we're tempted to see Jesus simply as a son in the way that we humanly think about fathers and sons. The scripture is saying something different. It's so easy for us to go to creaturely sonship, that Jesus is merely a son because he's a creature of God and then we get into heresy and that's a bad thing. And so what we're saying when we say that the son is eternally begotten or eternally generated is that This generation between the Father and the Son is an eternal act. Or as one theologian said, From all eternity, the Father communicated the one simple, undivided divine essence to the Son. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) That's a big phrase. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around. But we must confess that He was begotten, not made, as the Nicene Creed says. He was eternally begotten. And then John says... I am from him is what Jesus says. So as we, as we just take a little side there, maybe your, your mind is still turning. Maybe it's difficult to, to think about these things. I, even, I, I struggled over this for many hours thinking about how to explain this. What does this even mean? But as we look at the scriptures, we say that Jesus is claiming here to know God because he is eternally from him. He is the eternal begotten son of God. And this is really central to Jesus' claim to being equal with God. And it protects us from many heresies that invade the church. So that's Jesus' second phrase. He says, I know him. And the reason he knows him is because he is eternally from him. He's claiming here to be God. He's claiming nothing less. And then he also says that that the Father is the one that sent him that the Father is the one that sent him, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, that Christ in taking on human nature is fulfilling this, what we call the pactum salutis, this inner Trinitarian covenant to come and accomplish redemption, that the Father would send the Son, that the Son would be supplied by the power of the Spirit to redeem his people. That in Isaiah 53, we even see this promise that the Son would take on flesh that he would suffer and die, that he would be rejected by men, but he would do the Father's will. He would be sent from the Father, and this is what Jesus is claiming here in John chapter 7. And so as we come to this, we see these echoes of Isaiah, this rejection of God, because it says in verse 20, 20, or sorry, in verse 30, it says, they were still seeking to arrest him that there's still the sense that even though Jesus is revealing his divine nature and saying, I'm from the Father in a way that no one else is from the Father, and yet the people are seeking to kill him. They're seeking to arrest him. They're seeking to kill him. And so not only is he claiming to be one with God, he's claiming to be God himself. And yet we see that they cannot lay a hand on him, that his hour has not yet come. And so Jesus here proclaims that he is from the Father. He's telling them, I am the one that's come from the Father. I am not just come in the incarnation. They were looking at his earthly body. They're looking at his earthly human nature. And they missed the veiled glory of his divine nature, that he is the one truly from the Father. And so we move on to the second passage, the second sort of question where the question becomes, okay, this is where Jesus is from, but where is he going? Where is Jesus going is the question that these Pharisees ask. And so we see in verse 32 that there's not only confusion about where he's from, but ultimately where he is going. The chief priests and the Pharisees are upset now. They don't like that Jesus is out here proclaiming his true nature, who he really is, his true person, and so they seek to arrest him. They send officers, they send people to go arrest Jesus. And it's really interesting what we see here in verses 33 through 34. We see again, as we've seen in John chapter seven, Jesus does not revile. He does not return reviling for reviling. But he continues again and again to point them to the truth of who he is. And in verses 33 and 34, we see this divine mission of the Son. Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That Jesus here is saying, I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came to accomplish redemption. I came here to earn eternal life for God's people. He says, I'm only going to be with you a little longer. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm going to give myself over to you in a year. I'm going to surrender to you. You're not going to have to come and fight me tooth and nail. I'm going to give myself over to you. I'm going to let you arrest me. I'm going to let you beat me and mock me and scorn me. I'm going to let you put a crown of thorns on my head. And even to the point of crucifying and killing the only innocent son of God. He's saying, I'm only going to be with you a little longer, but my purpose is not to stay. It's not to stay on this earth. It's to go back to him who sent me. That his purpose in living on the earth and dying was not to stay dead, but was to be resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. His plan and purpose was to be the perfect one who would go and obtain glory and rest for God's people. And then he says something amazing in verse 34. He says, you will seek me and you will not find me that the expectation of these people is that the Christ would come, that he would set up this great earthly kingdom, this kingdom of David that would have no end. And so they were expecting all these earthly things from Christ and he has not come to do that. And he's basically saying, you will look for another Messiah, but you will not find one. I am the one that is sent from the Father. And he confesses that where I am, you cannot come. Where I am, you cannot come. And this is contrasted with what he just said. He said, I am going to him who sent me. And then in here he says, where I am. And we see this contrast again between Christ's human nature and his divine nature. It's almost as if he's saying, where I am, In my divine nature, I'm in heaven. (laughs) I'm God, I'm eternal. I, I can't be bound by space or time. You cannot come there. But in my human nature, I will go there. I will go to the right hand of the Father. And as one theologian said, his going was not yet a future thing, or sorry, his going was yet a future thing for his human nature, that he's proclaiming that even though he is currently ruling and reigning in his divine nature, that according to his human nature, he had not yet ascended. And so we see these very interesting verses at the end of our passage in verse 35 and 36 the Jews are confused. We see the confusion continue. They've missed the divine nature of Christ. They've missed his ruling and reigning. They've missed his purpose. They've missed his person and his work. And yet in this sort of ironic way, in this unintentional way, they prophesy the very mission of what Christ would do. And this happens several times in the scriptures, and this place is no different the Jews are confused. They think Jesus is saying, where I am, you cannot come, that he's talking about going to the Greeks, that he's talking about going to the Gentiles, that he's going to go teach them this great gospel, this great mission of the kingdom. And so they're confused about this. And so they think, and again, in an earthly sense, they think Jesus is just going to the Gentiles. He's going to the Greeks. And so they're still confused. But what's kind of prophetic about this is this is exactly what Christ is going to do. <laughs> He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's going to pour out his spirit. And in his heavenly ministry, he's going to build his church that's made up of both Greeks and Jews. And so we see this amazing providence of God that even in the confusion of these Jewish people, we see a prophecy of what God would do through Christ in building his church made up of both Jews and Gentiles so as we step back from this passage, as we try to think about these things, there's many heavy, deep, profound things that can be searched in these scriptures. And so how do we get our hands on this? How do we take something away from this? How do we apply this passage? The first thing that we need to do when we come to passages like this, where we're confronted with this great mystery of who God is, this trinity in unity, this one God in three persons, and, and namely, as we see Christ here in the incarnation, this one person that has both a human and a divine nature, the first thing that we need to do is behold. We need to behold our two-natured redeemer. That Christ came not only as the promised Messiah, not only as the one promised in the Old Testament, the suffering servant, but he came as the very eternally begotten Son of God. God of God. That he was no less than God in flesh. That he is two natures, human and divine, joined in one person. And that for you and I this morning, this is our only hope. We need a two-natured redeemer. We need someone who came not only as man, but as God. And so we need to understand rightly who Jesus is in his person and in his work. And we saw in this passage... There's confusion. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know where he's from. They don't know where he's going. And so we see the same thing in our day today. How many people are confused about Jesus, about who he is, about where he's from, about where he's going. And if we do not understand where Jesus is from, we are in big trouble. We're in big trouble. What does Jesus say? Unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins that christ came not simply as a good teacher as a moral example as a good prophet he must be god he must be god in the flesh he must be very and eternal god that is the only way that we can have hope is he is the one that's come from the father and if we do not understand where christ was going if we don't understand his work his mission We will not fully understand the gospel, and we will not have lasting hope in this life. That we need to understand that Christ came not only in the flesh, not only to suffer, not only in his humiliation, but he came to be exalted. He came to be glorified at the right hand of the Father that yes, he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the one that would be despised and rejected by men that had no majesty or glory that we should look on him. And yet at the same time, in his resurrection and his ascension and his current session at the right hand of the Father, he is exalted, He's glorified as the King of all kings, the Son of Man, our mediator, our two-natured Redeemer. And so this morning, as we try to apply this to ourselves, as we try to look to Christ this morning, for us as Christians, and especially here in Decatur, Illinois, 2,000 years removed from Christ, we should have this longing to be where Christ is, right? We see here that the people, these Pharisees, they want to be where Christ is, but it's only to mock, kill, and beat him. They want to be where Jesus is at, but it's only to destroy him. But for true followers of Christ, we should long to be where Christ is, to commune with him, to learn from him, and to worship him. And we see this throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, that the the disciples of Christ wanted to be where he was. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, Andrew and and Simon, Peter, they want to be where Jesus is. They want to be where he's at. Even after his resurrection, we see Mary go to him at the tomb, and she clings to him. She wants to be where Jesus is at. And yet, what does Jesus say to her? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. That in this amazing picture, it's easy for us in this this fleshly body, we want fleshly, earthly reality. We want to cling to what's eternal. I mean, we want to cling to what's earthly, to what's outward, to what, ex, what is external. And Jesus is telling Mary, I have not yet ascended. I have not yet been glorified. I have not yet gone to the right hand of the Father. And he says, it's better that I go. It's better that I leave. Because in Christ, ascending to the Father, pouring out his spirit, he's able to be present with his people every moment. That's why you and I have hope this morning, is that God is present with us by the Spirit, that He has pardoned our sin, He's mercifully forgiven us in His love, He's saved us, and He abides with us, He dwells with us, that we have the Spirit sealing us for the day of redemption, that Christ had an earthly ministry, He accomplished redemption, and then He went to the right hand of the Father, and in His heavenly ministry, by His Spirit, He builds and gathers His church, and and, and is with his people. He is present with his people. And so just like the people in the wilderness who built tabernacles and booths, so you and I are in these earthly bodies. We're in these sinful, earthly bodies. We're in the wilderness. And so this morning, our hope is that Christ was ascended. He not only came from the Father, but he also went back to the Father, and he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father right now. And in his work of the Spirit, he is present with us. That we have Christ, we have been crucified with him, and that we have hope. Because Christ is present with us by the Spirit. He is always present with his people. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so even though he went to the Father, he is with us now by his Spirit. And one day we will be with him for eternity. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you and we we just thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your gospel, Lord, that these great truths that we confess, even though our minds cannot comprehend them, we, we thank you that you have given us the only means of salvation in this proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so we pray this morning that our hope and our faith would be in Christ, that our faith and hope would be in him and who he is and what he's done in his finished work, and that he not only came in the flesh but he rose again on the third day and was ascended to the Father for us and for our salvation. And so this morning as we as we struggle with our own sin, as we struggle with suffering in this life, with death, with pain, with trials with sickness, we have hope this morning that you are present with us by your spirit and you will lead us to the heavenly promised land, that we have a hope this morning that is outside of this world that you have kept for us, and so we have a blessed inheritance that's been sealed by the work of your spirit, and so this morning, would you would you be present with us, would you give us profound peace this morning, and would we look to Christ? as we as we um partake of the supper today. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.